Hello and welcome to Infinite Possibilities Abound. I'm your host, Debbie Waisner. Did you have a garden this year? Or you want a different type of garden or you want a garden for next year? I have a couple of small raised beds that I grow tomatoes, green beans, some carrots, radishes, and different types of leafy greens. But I started thinking about vertical gardening. And so I looked in my garage to see what materials I had. I found some five-foot fencing, some landscape fabric, some plastic-coated wire, and determined I could make a couple of vertical gardens. I laid and rolled the fencing out till it was four feet long. I took my wire cutters and cut all the way down the side of the fencing. I knew I didn't want one five-foot vertical garden. So on the 48-inch section I had cut out, I measured three feet up and using the wire cutters, trimmed all the way across. And now I had materials for a three-foot vertical garden and a two-foot vertical garden. What I had to do now was to connect the ends to form a circle. And when I did that, that circle measured anywhere from 14 to 15 inches in diameter. Now I needed to figure out what I could use as the bottom for the vertical garden so I could hold the soil inside, which would allow me to move the vertical gardens, but not easily. A half inch of wood, maybe 15 inches in diameter, a clay saucer. I ended up using a heavy duty plastic saucer through which I drilled six holes in the bottom equal distance around so that I could use the plastic coated wire to connect the saucer to the metal fencing. I took the black landscape fabric and measured out 50 to 52 inches and then cut it on that line. I wanted a little overlap so that the soil, when put inside the the fencing, wouldn't fall out. I put the landscape fabric inside the fencing and attached all the way around the rim and about two or three inches from the bottom with the plastic coated wire. Now I needed to go to the hardware store because in the center of this vertical garden, I wanted a perforated pipe that would allow me to add water, fertilizer, my composted scraps, so that all these ingredients would be available from the bottom to the top of the vertical garden. So I purchased an eight foot section of black perforated pipe that was four inches in diameter. When I got home, I stretched that pipe out and made a cut at about 37 inches all the way across. I put a heavy bead of caulk around the bottom of the black pipe and centered it as best I could inside the vertical garden with the landscape fabric. And now I had to wait for that to dry. The next day, I started adding a combination of topsoil, composted cow manure, some peat moss and sphagnum moss, then more topsoil, and repeated until the vertical garden was about half full with soil and material. Then I added some of the composted cow manure or horse manure to the center pipe. At this point, you want to have thought about where you want your vertical garden to go. You only need a space of 14 or 15 inches in diameter. It could actually go on your back porch or or the corner of your balcony if you live in an apartment or a condo. 
the vertical garden at this point is heavy, but not so heavy that you generally can't move it. Once it's in place, you can finish adding the soil or any amendments to help your plants grow and thrive. When I made my first vertical garden, I did it in stages. One day I cut the wire. The next day I cut the landscape fabric. Another day I got the perforated piping and some soil. Another day I measured out the length of the wire needed to attach the saucer to the bottom of the vertical garden. And then I, a different, on a different day, I put it all together. I put the three foot one together first, and when I did the second two foot garden, it took me half the time that the first one did. I'm going to let all the material settle, and then I'm going to plant a fall crop of cool weather vegetables and leafy greens. It wasn't hard to build the vertical gardens. It just took time and materials. And there are any number of videos available on the internet to inspire your own design. Do you eat a diet rich in a variety of foods? I hope you do. There's one food that's gotten a bad rap for a couple of reasons. That food group are beans. I love beans. Black beans, canelli beans, kidney beans, peas, green beans. There are some experts and some science that beans can be problematic because, of, because they contain anti-nutrients like lectins or phytoestrogens. And the second objection can be the gas and bloating or flatulence from eating beans. Both of these issues or problems can generally be solved by soaking, sprouting, cooking, or fermenting the beans in question. Soaking dry beans for 24 to 48 hours and then cooking them significantly reduces the anti-nutrients as well as the saccharide components that cause the flatulent, the gas and the bloating. I try to eat beans two to four times a week, but if you've had problems with gas or bloating, start slow at maybe two tablespoons or a quarter cup of beans every couple of days. This will allow the bacteria in your body to become accustomed to the beans. I read recently where there are 16,000 members of the bean family, but there are only about 16 that are regularly consumed around the world. Now, personally, I don't like lima beans. It's a texture issue for me. No matter how they're prepared, yuck to lima beans. Beans are one of those foods that are firmly associated with longevity. Beans have a wonderful balance of carbohydrates, protein, and fiber. Research shows that all beans appear to be good for your health. Nutritionfacts.org lists black beans and lentils as two of the healthiest beans to consume. The fiber and the plant-based protein have a positive impact on improving heart health, and reducing cancer in research studies. Beans contain a slow-digesting starch that ranks low on the glycemic index and results in a sustained release of glucose, which keeps blood sugar balanced. And beans can be helpful for those suffering from type 
2 diabetes, and research studies have shown that beans and legumes provide improvement in diabetes markers, including fasting glucose, insulin, and HbA1c. Beans come in two options, dried beans and canned beans. I have both in my pantry. The dry beans are cheaper, but you're the one that ends up processing them, soaking them for 24 to 48 hours, and then cooking them in a pressure cooker or on a stovetop or a slow cooker. Canned beans are more expensive, and the linings of the cans contain BPA, which is a hormone mimic. I use the cans for convenience and when I'm in a hurry, but even then I will rinse and then soak the canned beans in distilled or deionized water for 20 minutes, throw that water out, and soak for another 10 minutes, throw that water out, and then add the beans to whatever else I'm cooking. There's almost nothing that beans can't be added to. Soups and stews, fillings for tacos and burritos. You can make your own veggie burgers. I toss beans into salads and into cold pasta dishes, as well as casseroles and stir fries. I've even put some black beans into brownie recipes, and they taste just fine. One dish that I love to eat and is easy to make can be made with or without meat. I generally will brown a half a pound of organic grass-fed meat or buffalo meat or turkey. To that, I would add three-quarters of a cup of black beans, three-quarters of a cup of kidney beans, one cup of organic frozen corn, which can be fresh or frozen but thawed, a half a cup of cherry tomatoes, which are halved, a half to one cup of red onions diced, one half cup of a red, yellow, or orange bell pepper, never a green bell pepper for me. I don't like the flavor. To this mixture, I will add one tablespoon of granulated garlic, a touch of lime or lemon juice, and then a cup of my favorite salsa. But if you don't want to add salsa, you can use your own imagination and add a variety of spices, a little bit of cumin, some chili powder, some dried oregano, a little bit of jalapeno pepper. One thing that I won't add is cilantro. I don't like the flavor of cilantro. Mix this all up together and you can eat warm or cold, use as a taco filling, a burrito filling, or on a tostada shell. So add more beans to your diet and the increased fiber will do your body and bowels good. Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and let medicine be thy food. One of those foods for your consideration are mushrooms. Mushrooms have played a pivotal role in human nutrition. In the Alps several years back, a 5,300-year-old Iceman was discovered carrying two forms of mushrooms, traditional Chinese, Japanese, and Tibetan medicine have used any number of mushrooms from chaga, cordyceps, mataki, shiitake, turkey tail, and rishi to promote good health and longevity. Modern science has caught up with ancient wisdom of our ancestors. Mushrooms are part of the fungi family. That includes yeasts and molds, mildews and rusts. 
They're one of nature's best recyclers and take materials that are no longer usable in one form and convert them to a form that's usable by other organisms. 100,000 mushroom species have been identified, but there could be many, many more that just haven't been discovered yet. Mushrooms can be edible, medicinal or functional, poisonous or psychedelic. They provide essential minerals and nutrients and generally have more protein than plants. They contain a polysaccharide, which is a form of carbohydrate that is slow to digest. One form of this polysaccharide is beta-glucans, which are linked to health benefits, including anti-cancer, antioxidant, antimicrobial properties, the ability to stimulate or suppress the immune system, depending upon what the body needs to fight a variety of infections or diseases. And the mushrooms can be broken down into culinary mushrooms, which generally you can eat as much of them as you would like. It includes the white button mushrooms, the portobellas, and a fairly new ingredient into the American household is the shiitake mushroom, but is prized as a, as a medicinal or functional mushroom. Another functional mushroom that you can cook is lion's mane. And I've seen this mushroom twice, once in a forest another, and another time on the walls just outside a cave. They're a very unusual looking mushroom. Both times I left the mushrooms alone and did not try to move them. In springtime, I like to go hunting for mushrooms and looking for the prized morels. When it comes to functional mushrooms, the question becomes, which one is best? Personally, that's not how I look at things. Each mushroom has different properties. The chaga mushroom has been known as the king of mushrooms. It's been used for over 4,000 years by cultures around the world. It's anti-inflammatory. It boosts the immune system. It aids digestion and improves longevity. The Chinese consider the shiitake the queen of mushrooms. It supports the immune system, the heart, and has anti-cancer properties. Rishi mushroom has been called the supreme protector. It supports the immune system, reduces fatigue, and is helpful in stress management. I mentioned lion's mane earlier. Lion's mane may improve your memory, concentration, focus, and at the same time, support your immune system, aid digestion, soothe and reduce anxiety and depression. And the last one that I will talk about today is turkey tail. I see this in whatever forest I go into, and their shape and variety of colors are reminiscent of a turkey's tail. Turkey tail is excellent for detoxification, a variety of anti-inflammatory properties, promote longevity, and reduce fatigue. So trying to pick one as number one I think is a useless exercise. I have chaga, lion's mane, and reishi available to me, and I add culinary mushrooms to my foods as often as is possible. So do some research and think about adding some medicinal or functional mushrooms to your routine and eating more culinary mushrooms.
I've mentioned before that I am fascinated by weather. So I do watch the weather in my location around the country and around the world. In China in the last three years, there have been historic flooding, so much so that the Three Gorges Dam was having issues and flooding was causing misery in a variety of locations in China. Crops were failing, mold and fungus was everywhere, and this year is in a historic drought where major rivers are drying up. And China isn't alone. Different places in the United States continue to suffer droughts as well as Africa, and many countries in Europe are experiencing historic droughts and rivers drying up. And droughts impact food production. But since droughts are happening across the earth, the decline in food production may become a huge problem. I'm saying this so that you can be aware of the situation. Knowledge is power. Here in Indiana, from the middle of May till the end of July, we were 7 to 11 inches below normal on rainfall. And that has a devastating effect on whatever crop is being raised. While in my garden I'm having a fairly good bean season, my tomatoes are not that productive. The drought monitor reports that 66% of the continental United States is experiencing some form of drought and 50% of the wheat crop in Texas is destroyed. So drought affects food production because less food is being produced and because of the scarcity, the price has gone up. One of my favorite snack foods that I might eat a couple times a week are cheese at crackers, cheddar jack version. In the last year, it's gone up by a dollar a box, though I can find it on sale on occasion. So I'm not going to be choosing cheese it cheddar jack crackers very often. So while inflation is having an impact on the price and availability of food, so is the drought. And I've read that there are 50 million people in 45 countries on the edge of famine. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but just be aware of the possibility. I'm not much into politics. I have conservative ideals, I have liberal ideals, but our political system is broken and the laws and policies that they've been passing this year are a bad joke based on questionable science and trying to change the behavior of Americans. The Inflation Reduction Act is going to spend a little less than $400 billion on energy security and climate change. California recently said, they can't produce enough, enough electricity to charge all the electric vehicles that the current administration wants to sell as clean energy. The problem becomes with the fact that most electricity is generated from fossil fuels, natural gas, and coal. And then there's the batteries. The batteries for these electric vehicles contain metals that need to be mined and then extracted from the earth, and then processed into a form that's usable. This entire mining cycle is an extremely dirty, destructive process that produces vast amounts of carbon emissions and leaves massive scars from where the mining took place. Again, you're using 
fossil fuels to mine, extract, and process these metals in order to make the batteries for the electric vehicles. These are just the inconvenient truths that the car companies, the battery manufacturers, and politicians wish to ignore. And to build the number of electric vehicles that politicians and policymakers want, you need a whole bunch more mines. You need a bunch more lithium mines, nickel mines, and cobalt mines. In the United States, it takes seven to 10 years to get the permit for a mine. And while in the developing world, and developing markets, it can take less time, it's still a multi-year process. So all the money that's going to be spent has no real chance of achieving its goal. This spending will enrich a small number of politicians, wealthy individuals, and vested interests at the expense of the taxpayer, as well as continuing to mislead many Americans. Sounds like a good idea, but it's a terrible waste, and it's highly unethical. But that's just my opinion, and of course, you don't have to agree with me. That's the wonderful thing. In one of the newsletters I received, they explained that there is a beta test group for implanting a chip that can unlock your car and pay for groceries, gas, restaurant, bills. I thought initially they were kidding, but they weren't. They found a hundred people who volunteered to have a chip put into their hand. Now, personally, I have no desire to have a chip or any form of electronics placed into my human body, but that's just me. I think it's kind of creepy. And if somebody came up and they wanted to steal your car, are you going to offer them your hand? So what do you think about having a chip implanted into your hand for convenience sake? Is it really that hard to carry keys to unlock the door or even start your car, depending on the model? Is it such an inconvenience to carry a credit card or a debit card? Are you willing to have a chip implanted for convenience? Have you ever thought about why some of your best ideas come to you in a shower or when you're walking the dog or taking a walk in the forest? In any of these cases, you don't have a lot to do. There may be some white noise involved. Your mind just wanders off and you're in a calm, relaxed state. And this combination seems to promote the answer coming to the forefront of your mind. Many times we're so busy doing everything else that we don't see or hear the answer until we're in a very relaxed, calm state of mind and body where your mind can just wander off and come back with a solution or great idea. I want to thank you for joining me today on Infinite Possibilities Abound. I'm your host, Debbie Waisner. I hope you have a fantastic day, week, and month, and that you'll join me again next week.